There's a former student of mine who's studying to be a missionary pilot up at Moody Bible Institute. And uh, he's been up there for some time now, finally got his pilot's license. That's a, that's a picture of him right there, Michael. And, uh, and I get the privilege of watching his Instagram posts from the air. Now, I'm not in the air, but I'm watching his, his video that he's taking of all these flights he's doing over beautiful Spokane, Washington, and different areas up there, and it's just amazing. And the other day, I got to see one of the videos where he comes in for like a low-level pass right over this dirt runway, and he, and he kind of just stays there uh, level for a, several hundred feet, and then he just takes off again and soars up into the blue. And, and my heart just soars with him, knowing that he's not only doing something really, really exciting, something that I always wanted to do, but he's actually doing it and using the gifts that God has given him for the spread of the gospel. And that is just an incredible, incredible thing. This picture really, really made me think. He, he swoops down low, hangs out there, and then takes off again. That's kind of what we want to do this morning with our passage. This, this chapter was rather overwhelming as I really started digging into it. And you can go very deep. There is a lot of stuff to dig out of here, and I really encourage you to do so. And if you want some good commentaries to help you do that, help you do your digging, then please come talk to me. I can recommend some to you. But today, I think the best way for us to approach it, given who we are and where we're at as a church and what's going on in our lives, I think is just to touch down see what's going on and then come up for the bigger picture that's my hope this morning let's read through our passage together we're in genesis chapter 15 if you have your bibles let's turn there and let's stand together as we read god's word this great incredible most precious gift that we have in the word of god genesis 15 beginning in verse 1 says this after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, what, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven, number the stars, if you were able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Verse seven, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, and a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, 
verse 11. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the, on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Let's get into this. The last two weeks, we were looking at the faith-fueled life. Our focus has been on those actions, those attitudes that faith in God produces. And these products of faith, they're very important because they confirm and validate faith. And that's what James tells us in chapter 2. There's a difference between faith in God that is real and faith in God that is just professed. You just say you have faith in God. There's a difference there. It's, it's, it's one thing to say that you have faith in God. I believe. I'm one of you. Yes, I have faith in God. But it's an entirely different thing, you see, to see someone's faith by the way they act, by the attitudes they have, by the things that come out of their, ma- their mouths. And based on what we've seen in Abram's life in the past two weeks, we have reason to believe that Abram actually has real faith in God. It's the real deal. He actually seems to be trusting God. And that trust is leading him to behave in some, well, odd ways. We saw him with his nephew Lot, and there wasn't much room in the land. And and he comes to Lot, and he says, you pick first. You look out there and you decide what part of the land you want to possess. See, Abram's trust in God, his faith in God and God's promises were such that Abram's faith was strong. He knew that even if he gave Lot any portion of the land, well, God's promises were still going to come true. He didn't need to worry about that. In chapter 14, we see him run into harm's way. Lot's in trouble. Lot's been taken captive, not just by a band of, of, of thugs. No, he's been taken captive by the armies of four great eastern kings. And Abram charges after him, and God gives him a great victory. Abram was able to do that because he trusts God, and he trusts in God's promise. 
See, God said, I was going to give you, uh, make you a great nation. And Abram's looking at it and he's saying, hey, I don't have any kids yet, so this can't be the end. So here we go. Charge on forward in confidence because I trust God. It was his trust in God. It was just evident in his actions. It's clear that his life was fueled by faith. But remember the yo-yo? I didn't bring it today. Remember the yo-yo effect. The life of faith, it's not necessarily drawn on a graph in this constant upward kind of escalator type motion. There are ups and there are downs, right? Based on the last two weeks, it seemed like Abram's trust in God was on the rise. It was rock solid. But here, here we see something different as he returns from this victory, this great, incredible victory up to the north in Dan. God comes to him in a vision, and God says in verse 1, he says, he says fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. He says, fear not. Isn't it so interesting that often, immediately after God has answered some great prayers in our lives, times where we were on our knees, times where we were relying on him desperately, God, I don't know how to get out of this. God, you're going to have to do something incredible here. And God does that. He delivers you, and then you're right back to square one. You're right back to square one. God, I've got something else. Oh my goodness, this one is, this one's bad. And you fear and you doubt. That's where God, that's where God knew that Abram's heart and mind were right here. Even before Abram mentions anything, God says, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. I wonder if Abram maybe was fearing that those armies that he had defeated and, 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 and got all the, all the possessions and all the people back, I wonder if he thought, you know, they're just probably going back to regroup, and then they're really going to be mad. I wonder if he thought that. But God knew what was going on in Abram's heart, and so he tells him not to fear. Not to fear, but to remember that God ultimately is his shield. God is his protector. Furthermore, you can be assured, Abram, that great reward is coming your way. Great reward is coming your way. That led Abram to another area of concern. Now he's thinking about the future. Now he's thinking about God's promises. And he's starting to think, a lot of time has passed, God. A lot of time has passed. After that sojourn in Egypt, after I divided the land with Lot, after touring the land from top to bottom, left to right, after having completed that daring escape, that rescue mission, my wife and I still don't have any kids. Great is my reward? God, when is this going to happen? We're not making the progress that I expected we would make here. How long is it going to take? Maybe God never really intended that, that, that my heirs were going to be my flesh and blood. Maybe it's just my servant. It's, it's going to come through him, and it's going to be some type of symbolic family line here. Maybe it's going to come through Eliezer. Oh, that'd be a letdown. <laughs> What's happening here? Here in Genesis 15, we see a man leaning on his own 
understanding. You remember Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, don't you, some of you? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. He will make your paths. He will make straight your paths, it says in this translation. God says, trust me. No matter how big the obstacle, trust me. No matter how logic-defying to your finite, puny brain it may seem. No matter what your perspective is, trust me. But humanity says time and time again, we've got a better way. God, I, I, I think the way we're, we're thinking about it, I think, God, can, can, let's talk here. Let's flesh out the logic here, God, because I'm not sure your way actually is best. You see, from my perspective, down here on the ground, I'm boots on the ground here. I see what's really going on. God, take it from my perspective, and we doubt what God is doing. We start leaning on our own understanding. And that's not a new problem. This is not a new problem. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3, right? You remember where two people considered the possibility that maybe their way might be the better road to take. Essentially, they were saying through their actions, God, you know, we, we, we love this life that you've given us here. This is great. I mean, a garden paradise. Who could ask for more? It's beautiful. We like the position of authority that you've given us. I mean, we are top of the food chain here. We have authority over all of these other creatures, over all of your creation. We like that. And we like that every single one of our needs has been thought out and provided for in advance. Lord, this is great. We love it. But you know... When it comes down to it, we just like to judge for ourselves whether or not there might be some improvements made. We'd like to judge for ourselves whether or not there might be something better, something more for us. And you remember what happened. And that single act of rebellion, that moment of departure from trusting God completely, doing life His way, the introduction of what the Bible calls sin, that has thrown the human existence into this chaotic, downward-plunging mess. It's a mess. It's not hard to see that. You look at your own life and you see the sad results of sin all over the place. It's why life, just trying to survive in life, is a struggle. It's why we're plagued with worry and stress and feel the need to solve our own problems. It's why we're constantly needing to come up with new ways to protect ourselves from each other. It's why we're bent on finding all sorts of diversions like entertainment and drugs to keep us from thinking on our pathetic existence. It's why sometimes we can't bear to look another person in the eyes. It's why Mick Jagger and the rest of us, we can't get no satisfaction. And it's why we do things we shouldn't do and very often know that we don't even really want to be doing these things. The late great Apostle Paul attested that. He cries out in Romans chapter 7, Wretched man that I am, 
Who will deliver me from this body of death? This was Abraham's problem. That's our problem. Fear, misunderstandings, confusion, self-deception, shame, guilt, depression, all of these are a result of that tiny three-letter word, sin. It's sin. But you know what gets worse than that? You say, that's, pretty, that's some pretty depressing news. I, I don't, I don't want to go worse. Well, it does get worse than that, and we've got to face the reality of it. Oh, it would be one thing, wouldn't it, if all we had to deal with were the immediate consequences of our sin. Life is not as good as it could have been. Yeah, paradise is lost, and you know what? It is a struggle to live in this world of ours, but you know what? We're facing that challenge. We're making it better each and every day. We're going to overcome. We'll get through it. You know, that, that would be one thing. But there are even bigger consequences. And our world does not want to recognize this. It does not want to face this reality. The bigger consequences are kind of like a, a son who secretly borrows the keys to dad's 1971 Ford Mustang Mach 1. And it peels out on the line, entire smoking, ear-piercing fury, and then he wraps it around a pole. Not only has his fun come to an abrupt end, but now he's got to face the wrath of dad. You don't want that. Someone might say, do you mean to tell me? Do you mean to tell me, pastor, that you're going to talk about something as antiquated as wrath? In 2019, I am. I have to. And I don't know it's so much of an antiquated idea as it is the Bible's idea. Yes, the Bible, it's an ancient book, but this is also God's word. So this is one of God's ideas. And if it's one of God's ideas, then it's a true idea. And we would be terribly mistaken to ignore it. Or avoid it. The, bigger, the biggest problem of sin is the wrench that it throws into our relationship with God. It does several different things. Sin blinds us to God's truth. It prevents us from seeing reality for what it really is. We look at what's obvious right in front of our eyes and we don't recognize it as what is true. Sin also renders us unrighteous, unholy, unacceptable in God's sight. Do you realize that each and every human being is unacceptable in God's sight because of sin? We're lawbreakers. We're flawed. We're tainted. We're unfit to be in God's presence. How's that for self-esteem? Sin does another thing. It leaves us incapable of doing God's will incapable it actually enslaves us even when we're trying so hard to do good things sin is working within us and it's polluting it's corrupting all of that our motives it's preventing us from truly purely sincerely doing those things unto god jesus tells the pharisees in john 834 that everyone who sins everyone 
is a slave to sin. They're unable to do what God wants them to do, even if they, even if they wanted to. And finally, what we're talking about right now is that sin makes us the object of God's wrath. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You might say, that sounds pretty grim. It is. You might say, I thought angry God was a thing for the Old Testament. Okay, well, I understand because we're in the Old Testament. You have to talk about angry God. Yes, that is true. The Old Testament does testify to that. But it's not only the Old Testament. Humanity's sin problem, it doesn't go away just because the calendar has turned from B.C. to A.D., it doesn't go away. We don't magically, magically appear on God's good list because we're now on the right side of history. In Romans 1, Paul is telling people, people on this side of history, the side that we're on, that the bad news still applies. It still applies. And I'm here to tell you that not only did it apply 2,000 or so, almost 2,000 years or so back when Paul was writing, it still applies today. It does. Just because we've become all sophisticated and have cool gadgets and, and made some advancements in medicine and philosophy, civilization may have become a little bit more refined in certain places. Just because we ride around these fancy electric carriages now, some of us, those who can afford them, that does not mean that anything has changed in your relationship with God. Nothing. You've damaged it. And the wrath of God remains even today. And someone might be thinking, well, what about, what about, hold on, what, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? He was God, wasn't he? And Jesus was loving. He was kind. He was meek. He was mild. He was as gentle as a lamb. He wouldn't hurt a fly. Surely, Surely the fact that God sent Jesus tells us God is not angry anymore. Well, first of all, don't call me Shirley. Secondly, <laughs> look at Revelation 6. This is what was revealed to John of what would take place at the end of time. It tells of these different seals that are being broken and these documents that are being opened up. And judgment is now raining down on the earth. Check out verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Did you catch that? That's in here. 
You can grab one of these and you can see it. It is in here. God's judgment is being poured out. People are running for their lives. And it's not just the scaredy cats. It's not just the wimps out there. It's not just the feeble. But it's the kings. It's the generals. It's the rich. It's the powerful. And they're hiding in caves. They're begging for the mountains and rocks to come down and crush them. Because that would be far better than being left exposed to the wrath of God. Fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, they cry. And someone says, there, you see, that's the angry God we're talking about. There he goes. He's showing up again. But wait. That is that same God. The God who flooded the earth. But look at what else they're afraid of. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, God the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know that every time the Bible talks about the Lamb, it's talking about Jesus. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Isaiah 53 talks about this lamb. 53, 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yeah, he's gentle. He's, he's mild. And yet here in Revelation 6, Jesus is described as someone people are terrified of terrified of the wrath of the lamb to some that may that may not seem quite right and i understand and i feel your pain but the reason it doesn't sound sound right is because too many pastors and bible teachers for too long have not told the whole story jesus didn't come because you and i needed some love he came because we needed a savior. Jesus didn't die because he was weak. He died because you and I were in desperate need of a substitute. We needed an escape from the wrath of God. Jesus took that upon himself. And yes, Jesus is the savior of the world, but the Bible also tells us that the day is coming when he is also going to be its judge. Matthew 25, it's right there in one of the Gospels, tells us that when he returns, he will return as king. He will sit on his glorious throne and he will separate the rescued from the condemned. And you say, oh, no, 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 no. Don't say that word. Don't say separate. If heaven is going to be a place that I'm going to go to, there better be some diversity there. That's what I value. Well, I don't believe there's any other place in all of existence that is more diverse than heaven. But I can tell you this, that there are certain people who will not be there. People who don't have their sin covered by the blood of the Lamb, will face wrath and the judgment 
of the Lamb. They'll be shut out. Someone might say, well, if that's the way it's going to be, that's just fine with me. That's just, that's just fine. I don't, I don't want to hang out with those people anyway. Really? Have you considered the alternative? Matthew 25, 46, that's the same passage says, and these will go away into eternal punishment. Now, I didn't like getting disciplined in school by the teacher. But this is a totally different thing. Jesus calls it the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. We human beings are a cursed people. We're a cursed people. Before the face of a holy, righteous God, we just stand unrighteous. We stand condemned. And if our problem is not remedied, we will absolutely experience the full force of God's wrath. It's not just an Old Testament thing. It's not just a God the Father thing. It's a New Testament thing, and it is a Jesus thing. And you know, there's no exceptions. The Bible says that none is righteous, no, not one. It says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, all are unrighteous. We're all deserving of this horrible wrath of God. Folks, I'm sorry. We hold our symptoms up to the Bible, and it reads back with a diagnosis that says, your condition is terminal. That's the way it is with us. That's the way it was back with Abram. Here in chapter 15, once again, he's leaning on his own understanding. God, I, I, I don't see how you're going to come through on your promises to me. And he's revealing that he has that same sin problem. He's not righteous. God does something surprising for him here. He takes him out under the blanket of stars and says, look toward the heavens. I, I just want to insert in there, look to the heavens, you of little faith. Look toward the heavens. Number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God says, I'm going to come through with my promise to you. And by the way, it is going to blow your mind. And that brings us to verse 6 where we read of Abram. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. What? We just got through talking about how Abram was unrighteous. Totally unrighteous. Totally deserving of the wrath of God. And now all he's doing is believing and that's counted to him as righteousness? Shouldn't he at least have to do some type of, of, of penance? Or some type of so, uh, apologizing? Maybe reciting something over and over and over until he said it enough and God's tired of it. And God says, okay, now you're righteous because just be quiet. Shouldn't he have to earn it in some way? And the answer is no. Because he can't. Because an unrighteous person can't 
do righteous things any more than a dead person can do the things of the living. The Bible says that you and I, we are dead in our sins, and dead people cannot fix their predicament. They can't. Heard of a few people who have actually, uh, after they passed away, they've had their heads removed and they've had them frozen. And, and, they, and they put them away into some type of like Han Solo storage and uh, they're kept there hoping that science is going to advance far enough in the years to come. Maybe it's a hundred years, maybe it's a thousand years, whatever. We don't care, but I'm hoping that there'll be a scientist one day that sees my frozen head. And decides that he's going to experiment on me, and he's going to try to revive me, and hopefully I'm not the first frozen head, and he can make mistakes on all those other heads out there, but hopefully when he gets to me, then I'm just going to start talking as a, as a head. Doesn't sound like a great existence, but hey, it's something. I'm a little skeptical if that's ever going to happen, but, but you see the point. They're entrusting themselves completely to these scientists. They're totally at the mercy of these scientists. And hopefully there's some philanthropist that, philanthropist that funds the research and makes it possible for this, this person to come back to life. But they're not going anywhere on their own. And it's the same way with the unrighteous, the condemned, those who are dead in their sins. They can't do anything to fix their situation. They're at the mercy of God. And so you see, the only thing Abram could do was trust God. He had nothing else he could do. That's all he had. The big difference between Abram and one of those frozen heads is that Abram had his trust in a good place. He had God's word. He had something to go on here. His trust was in the right place. You know, faith in just anything is not going to get you anywhere. You can believe all you want, but what you believe in, that's what really makes all the difference. And if Abram's faith was in God, and God had no intention of doing anything to make a way for Abram to be saved, well, that would have been a complete waste also. And I can have faith that Elon Musk has enough money to pay off all of my debts even those school loans, and I'd be right. But because Elon hasn't made any promises to me or given me any reason to think that he's going to send me a check in the mail, then my faith would just be silly, totally unfounded. But it just so happens that Genesis 15 is all about the promises of God in which Abram should believe in and through which Abram would bring about through his family line, God would bring about the Savior of the world. Let's just skim the surface of our passage real quick one more time. Verse 7, God says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. Abram still doubts. And that's when God has him begin to make preparations for the signing of a contract. Now, contracts back then were a little different than they are today. Contracts back then were made in blood. And so God instructs Abram. He goes and collects these animals. He cuts them in half. He lines them up parallel to each other. Then he falls into a deep sleep. In that sleep, God assures him that Abram's descendants are going to be taken out of this land. They're actually going to sojourn in a land that is not their own. And in that land, they're going to be there for 400 years as servants or as slaves. But after that, they would return with great possessions. 
He tells Abram that Abram himself is going to die at a ripe old age, and he's going to die in peace. That's great. And he also tells Abram that Abram's people are going to come back into the land that was promised after the Amorites had reached sin's maximum tolerable level. And then in the form of a smoking fire pot and a torch, God passes through the halves of those animals. Sounds strange, right? And that this is the way that the ultimate contract was made. The person passing through basically saying, if I don't fulfill every part of my end of this covenant, of this deal, then my, may my fate be the same as these animals. This is God making it absolutely clear to Abram. I don't know how much more clear I can make it to you, Abram. I am going to come through on my promise to you to give your descendants this land. What does this have to do with God making Abram righteous or giving us a way to escape his wrath? And as this, it was this promise, this covenant that would secure the way for Jesus. Abram's faith wasn't just in anything. It was faith in God and God's promise, which would ultimately bring about the way for the sins of the world to be taken away. Abram didn't know the name Jesus yet, but his trust was in God's plan. Abram couldn't do anything to save himself. He didn't initiate any of this, did he? Remember, he was, he was up in Ur of the Chaldeans. He may have been worshiping the moon god out there, and that's when God comes to him. He wasn't praying, God, give me a sign. No, God plucks him out of Ur, out of that pagan life there, and he says, I'm doing something special with you, brother. And this covenant, Abram doesn't initiate this. It's all God. Abram doesn't walk through the line of dead animals. No, God goes through. This is all on him. This is his idea. The transforming of an unrighteous person into a righteous person, an imperfect person, into a person who would be acceptable in God's sight. That is God's thing. And all Abram could do was trust. That's why God counted it to him as righteousness his faith in god was the only way he could be made right with god that was good for abram it's good for us today is there any hope for imperfect people how can imperfect people such as ourselves escape the wrath of god just as it was true for abram It is true for us. Thank God. Faith in God is the only way to be made right with God. This is the the ancient gospel. And it's the gospel that we cling to today. Abram was looking forward to the promise of God. A promise that would bring blessing to him and blessing to others. And he trusted that God would bring it about. We're on the other side of that promise now. It's been fulfilled. God kept his part of the bargain. The covenant has been fulfilled. God made Abram a blessing to the people of the world through Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And yet, even though we're on the other side of history, the other side of the cross, we look to that promise just like Abram did. 
on the cross, Jesus endured the wrath of God on our behalf. He took the death sentence of imperfect people, allowing it to be carried out on himself. He made a way for our criminal record to be erased and our offenses can be stricken from the record. But there's a catch. There is a catch. What Christ applied is only applied. It's only received by Abram, and it's only enjoyed by us through faith. Abram believed the Lord, and it would counted to him as righteousness. In the same way, you and I must believe if Christ's righteousness is to be counted, if it's to be credited to our lives. There was a miraculous earthquake, and it freed Paul and Silas and left the jailer just completely fearful. And he ends up coming to them on his knees and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Do you believe in Jesus? And I'm not talking about the believing like, uh, I believe it's going to rain today. And I also don't mean, I, I believe that there was a person named Jesus who lived about 2,000 years ago, and I think he was executed. I'm not talking about that kind of belief either. What I'm talking about is, do you believe, not only in the sense that you know the facts, but you also trust them. You rely upon Jesus. You depend on what he did for you on the cross. Do you know that without God's promise, you are totally lost, radically condemned, hopelessly doomed to face the wrath of God? And do you hear God's words saying to you, trust me? Rely on me. Believe that because of my great love, I've made a way. It's the only way. It's Jesus. This is the ancient gospel. It was for Abram. It was for us. Will you receive it? Faith in God is the only way to be made right with God. It's time to believe and let God count your faith. His righteousness. Let's pray.